Hello, and welcome to episode 82 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. We'll get to my interviews with Desmond Mead, Neil Voles, and Sean Morales-Doyle about Amendment 4 in Florida in just a second, but first the news. I was proud to be the moderator for the Evidence-Based Case for Ending Sex Offender Registries, a webinar that we did last week featuring Miriam Ackerman, Vincent Schiraldi, and Judith Levine. Almost 300 people watched it live on Zoom. Several hundred more have checked it out on Facebook, and another 540 people have watched it on YouTube. You can check it out now from the Safe and Just Michigan YouTube channel as well. It is really rare that anyone publicly makes the case against registries outside of academic papers, despite the case being an incredibly strong one, so I hope you'll check it out if you haven't already. We'll uh, next be doing a series of webinars in support of the implementation of the Joint Task Force on Jail and Pretrial Incarceration here in Michigan. That set of webinars will start on June 8th. You can also catch up on all of the webinars that Safe and Just Michigan has done, which I think we've done eight so far uh, over the last several months since this COVID crisis started. Since last week's episode with Fury Young, Die Jim Crow Records, The Label, released a new video by B.L. Shirell called SIGS. It's a very powerful song. You should check it out and support the art of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people whenever you can. Okay, Amendment 4 moved the tectonic plates. It sent a strong message about the right to vote for formerly incarcerated people all across the country. As usually happens in these moments, the empire struck back, and Florida tried to seriously limit the impact of that ballot initiative. At the same time, Amendment 4 entirely excluded important categories of people convicted of crimes. Uh, I speak about everything that's happening with the leaders of the Florida Rights Restoration Committee, and afterwards, I have a discussion with one of the attorneys fighting against the legislative imposition of what many have called a poll tax. Let's get to my interviews with Desmond Mead, Neil Voles, and Sean Morales-Doyle. I am here with two of the leaders of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, the group responsible for passing Amendment 4 in Florida. Neil Voles has more than 25 years of experience as a public servant community advocate. This includes work as the chief staff for a member of Congress and staff director for a full congressional committee, as well as the outreach director for one of the fastest growing churches in the country, as the program director for a leading nonprofit organization that serves formerly formerly homeless veterans. Uh... Desmond Mead, oh, Desmond Mead is a formerly homeless returning citizen who eventually became the president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. He's the chair of Floridians for a Fair Democracy and a graduate of Florida International University College of Law. Uh, he's also received many accolades celebrating his hard work and dedication to leadership and commitment to social justice. He led the FFRC to a historical victory in 2018 with the su- successful passage of Amendment 4, uh, which uh, restored voting rights to over 1.4 million Floridians with past felony convictions. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Neil and Desmond. Thanks, Josh. Josh, it's a pleasure being on, man. Yeah, it's great to talk to both of you all. I always ask the same first question. How did both of you get from where you started to where you were leading the largest expansion of voting rights in the last 50 years? 
Just a small question. <laughs> you, you you don't have enough time in your show to to properly uh, answer that question. Give it the uh, the just do it deserves. But you know, I think on the short end, uh, I think it's you know, and, and Neil can speak for himself, but you know, collectively, I think it's our willingness really to uh, step into the pathway that God has created for us and, and step into our purpose uh, that He laid out for us, man, to do His work. At the end of the day. That certainly makes sense. What about you, Neil? Yeah, no, I, I'll just I, I, I'll add to that. I mean, I, I, as a person of faith myself, I, I think God uses broken and hurting people to do great things, and 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 I think that's the contours that we walked into. I know for me, it was, you know, getting a felony conviction. Uh, gosh, almost fifteen years ago, making some stupid decisions, blowing up my life, and 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 starting over, and wanting to live a life of integrity, and moving to Florida. Um, and, uh, you know, working as the janitor, making minimum wage, struggling, to get a job, trying to find, you know, my way and, uh, ultimately, uh, meeting Desmond, uh, by that point, Desmond was already, uh, leading the effort, uh, to get amendment four on the ballot. This was 2015 for me. Uh, we became fast friends and brothers and it's just been a journey of a lifetime, man, to, to see what's possible. Um, you know, when you put people first. Yeah. So let's start really simple. What is Amendment 4 and what does it do? Well, I mean, in a a nutshell, um, um, the state of Florida, uh, prior to 2018, the state of Florida was one of four states that permanently disenfranchised people who were convicted uh, of felony offenses. Uh, and, And what that means is that folks lose their civil rights uh for life right and you're talking about the the right to to vote the right to serve on the jury the right to um run for public office um and of course the right to to bear to bear arms um and so florida joined the ranks of of states like kentucky and at the time virginia and iowa of having this policy and what amendments four did uh in a nutshell was um, create an alternative route for people to be able to vote again uh, without having to uh, rely on the mercy of uh, a governor of their uh, respective states um, and, and not let, you know, especially partisan politics weigh in, you know. And so whenever you have a politician that has the power to decide which American citizen get the vote and which American citizen don't get the vote, uh, it leaves a lot of room for partisan politics to influence. And so Amendment 4 provided a way uh, that wouldn't be tainted by uh, partisan politics in, in allowing American citizens to vote once they've served their time. I think many people these days kind of often take the right to vote for granted. I know at least, uh, I think all of us in this conversation have, had le- have at least for a time had our votes suspended. Uh, what made protecting the right to vote so important to to what? How did this bring you two together? You know, so first and foremost, I think that there is nothing that uh, there's no greater indicator of citizenship than being able to vote. You know, uh, and and so when you talk about voting, you, you you're talking about being a citizen. You're talking about actually being able to have your voice heard. You know, and and, and be able to. Uh, participate in our democracy, and 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 that is a, that is a huge thing, you know. And so that self, you know, people like me who uh, were convicted of a felony offense and and was disenfranchised, 
you know, I was living a life to where I wasn't a full citizen. I was a second-class citizen, if that at all. And 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 that is not uh, uh, was not a good place to be for me, uh, because not only did it impact you know my ability to to practice in my profession of law, but it also impacted my ability to even vote for my wife when she ran for office. And I, I gotta I'll, I'll just add to that because you know I, I I just think that losing the ability to you know have a say right and 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 losing your voice losing your right to vote i mean that that for me spurred on this passion i, I don't think there's a better evangelist for democracy than somebody who's lost the right to vote and then gets it back and i think in many ways i'll speak for me but probably for des as well like I, I, it's an incredible joy to be in this moment um, despite everything going on, but almost every day I get a phone call or an email of somebody who just registered to vote and is going through that process of getting their voice back and what that does to you as a person. Like it, it's not just that you're getting your right to vote back, but you're getting your dignity back and your standing in community back. And and I think that that's a really powerful thing. Yeah, one of the very first uh, people I had on uh, this season of the podcast was my friend Val, who uh, did over 40 years in prison. And, you know, there was nothing that was going to stop him from getting to the voting booth. I know that for sure. Uh, So in the context of where you all are from, what made you all think it was possible to restore the vote in a place like Florida, which is a state not exactly known for its friendliness to criminal justice issues? (laughs) Oh, man. I, 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 listen, I go back to God. You know, with God, all things are possible. And 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 here's the thing that you know, as a person of faith, I, I, I see even throughout you know the Bible where God always used, like Neil says, the broken or the least among a group of people to bring about the uh, the biggest change. And 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 I tell folks that this movement was divinely inspired. You know, and and so you know, at the end of the day. We, I truly believed, and I had faith that we were on the right path and that we were going to be successful in spite of uh, what the naysayers may have said. And, and, and to be quite honest, all of the experts said that it was impossible for this to even happen. And if my mother was alive, she would have probably told me the same thing too. But, you know, where man says no, God says yes, right? Um, and, 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 and he's proven that time and time again with this campaign at every juncture. Yeah, and, and, to, and just to add to that, like I mean, like Desmond said, all the experts, everybody who knows everything, you know, was was saying that this just isn't possible, right? In the state of Florida, you're going to talk about voting, you're going to talk about, you know, felons, even though we like to use the word returning citizen. You're going to talk about crime, and you're going to have to get sixty percent of the vote, right? Like that, th- those those words just add up to impossible, you know. But this this is this is a this is a faith mission, you know, and so and and, and there. And I give Desmond so much credit uh, for for leading this effort, right? Because if you think about the process that was required, you had decades of elected officials promising to make changes, or it's some people not even listening. But this was a there was no hope, and ultimately this became the hope. And you saw something amazing happen, in which families from all over the state rallied around returning citizen family members and friends and neighbors. And you got to see this family, this network get stitched together around, built around the pain of people uh, trying to live with the broken system, suddenly seeing an opportunity through a, a citizen ballot initiative to change something on their own. And man, it has just been uh, amazing to watch that 
family come together and it still exists here in the state of Florida, all across the state, there are returning citizens who have been walking with us for years. And it's, a, it's, it's really just a, a powerful thing to see. I mean, that's one of the reasons I actually called the podcast Decarceration Nation was in hope that all of us would kind of unite and sort of move toward that kind of, and to see you all do that is really, uh, really warmed my heart in a lot of ways. Um, you know, there's this kind of, I think, I think it's a misperception. I know when I was in prison, uh, it sure didn't seem like everyone was all of one political persuasion. Uh, but I know that a lot of the pushback had to be somewhat political, maybe. How did you kind of navigate those waters? <laughs> you know, uh, just the nature, the very nature of of the ballot initiative uh, uh, definitely would attract uh, uh, political commentary, right? Because we're talking about voting. Uh, but what we felt um, was most important was people, right? And so we could have either focused on the political nature of it, uh, we could have even focused on the racial uh, uh, um, impact that uh, this policy had. But what we chose to focus on was actually the people. And what that meant was it allowed us the opportunity to connect with folks from all walks of life, all political persuasions, all right, along the lines of humanity, you know, and, and, and along the lines of what does it mean to be a citizen? What does it mean to participate in democracy? And so, you know, the easiest way that I found to navigate uh, those treacherous political waters was by maintaining focus on the fact that at the heart of this issue was real people whose lives will be impacted. Yeah, and so I think if, if, if to pick up on where, where Des was coming from, like I think of election night, right, and, and realizing that on election night, when it came to this amendment, we knew deep down that people were not going to vote for a political ideology. They weren't voting for candidates. They didn't have candidates in mind. They literally were thinking about their neighbors, their friends, you know, their loved ones. And that was, like I said, at the heartbeat of this entire movement was this idea that, you know what, if you can connect along the lines of humanity and we can go loved one to loved one and know that we're not going to confuse it with the other issues that are out there that can sometimes be confusing, you know, and noise in, in, in people's minds and a distraction and then turn to partisanship. But if we can keep people focused on their loved ones, their neighbors, somebody that they know who's impacted by this policy, that was a, a way to move, 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 move the needle forward. And, uh, and, and so that, I think just uh, that, that was, what Desmond was talking about, watching it play out. And, and, and for me, it was seeing people who were afraid to share their own stories, you know, two years earlier, suddenly the night before the election or the months before the election, being willing to go in front of a group of 100 people, their neighbors, their friends, their church, their civic group or their sporting, you know, their team and share their story. And that was powerful. And, you know, that was that's so much of the heartbeat of what happened and continues to happen. So one of the things that you've talked about, uh, and I think is, you know, with all three of us being people of faith is really important, is uh, church and faith and prayer. Uh, but I'm hoping that a lot of the people listening, I know everybody across the country is involved in different levels of political struggle uh, in their cities and their towns and their states across the country. And so I'm hoping maybe to, you know, that if there's practical information you can share on, you know, how you started and kind of which ways you you built the coalition or like how people, you know, how you would start, you know, 
I think that might be helpful to folks who are just starting to become active or are active but don't really know how to make something like this happen. Man, let me tell you, it's so simple, right? <laughs> you know how I started, right? Just having conversations with returning citizens throughout the, throughout the state of Florida, right? It's those one-on-one conversations. One person that, you know, there's that uh, old Chinese adage, how do you eat an elephant, right? You eat it one bite at a time. And, and so this, uh, you know, we started uh, pure grassroots, pure grassroots effort, right? Whether we're meeting people in their homes, as Neil said, in the coffee shops, restaurants, out there in the community, and being willing to have conversations with folks and to really talk about this issue and how important uh, uh, it is for us to change these policies and really connect with people on a very personal level. And and so, you know, if any coalition, you know, you're going to have uh, organizations that's a part of it, whether they're national or state-based organizations. But, you know, what what we experienced was that there was a time when none of those organizations were around, you know, and and we had to just keep moving and we had to keep having those. That when you go and you build a, a grassroots movement, Right, and then the organizations will they will come back, you know, and, and and you're able to do something great. But I think the key is is really being able to build the grassroots movement, and that just it don't just come overnight, you know. That's going to take years and years of sacrifice. You know, I used to drive uh, around the state of Florida uh, over fifty thousand miles a year. Right, those are a lot of conversations, you know. Um, but those are the sacrifices that need to be made. And that this wasn't a ready-made campaign. This wasn't a campaign that was that was just uh, the brainchild of some rich billionaire or whatever that wanted to do something. This was the brainchild of everyday people from our walks of life that was able to connect with each other and said that, you know what, we're going to make this happen. Uh, we believe in second chance. And Neil, did you have any thoughts? It's interesting because when I think about what the question, I think about the first time I met Desmond, right? So it's 2015. Um, I'm I'm helping to uh, run a drug and alcohol recovery program and putting the putting my life back together, starting to make a little bit of progress, and and um, and it was a divine appointment, right? So I I don't I don't know that we have time to go into the whole backstory on on how we got there, but I remember walking into the room on a college campus and Desmond was there and I was actually there helping a, a, a young uh, person who I go to church with at, at another event and I saw wow felon disenfranchisement uh, I'd, I'd been thinking about trying to get involved or dig into it or see what uh, what I should do and, and and that was the moment for the door opened for me and I walked in and, I, and now mind you I've, I've got 20 plus years of conservative activism I, I come I grew up I was a professional Republican for a while and and uh, um, and and, and got uh, kind of <laughs> when I got in trouble, um, that that whole life uh, kind of ended for me, and and I was starting over again. But that but that's where I come from. So I, I walked into this room, and my first instincts, and it was me. It wasn't the room itself, and it wasn't the, the how Des was leading. But my first instincts was, hey man, oh wow, I kind of stumbled into the kind of a progressive-y you know uh, event here, um, and I regretted regretted sitting down. Um, but I'm telling you, man, within 30 seconds, the way Des was leading the conversation, like I went from, I don't know that my story fits here to, 
oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be here. And there is a place for my story in this bigger story. And I think that when, when I hear Des talking about it, like I just wanted, like there, there, another reason for success is great leadership from him. You know, the ability to create a culture that really did, I mean, on any 24 hour period, I could have gone from a Trump rally collecting petitions, you know, to a black church, uh, to a biker event, right? And we're all talking the same, we're just meeting people as people. Like, oh, you know what it's like to have to deal with this too? Right, let's change it. And it, I mean, just an incredibly empowering grassroots movement, you know, that, that built up around some really basic values that we all could, uh, you know, connect to. Okay, I have to ask a few just slightly tough questions. I think you've heard of a couple of them before. Uh, first, I, you know, the one I hear the most and the one that, I mean, it's, I, I won't deny, uh, frustrated me a little bit, although I still saw the overall value of the, the, the campaign, was the carve-outs for uh, people who have been sentenced for murder or for sex offenses. Do you all want to address that at all? Most definitely. I, I have no problem with that because it frustrated the heck out of me, too. You know, at the end of the day, you know, because here's the deal, right, that that I believe that no one should ever lose their right to vote. They should not ever lose their spirit, right? Uh, and, 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 and how I, I, you know, the analogy that I use is my sons. I have four sons. And, you know, if you have boys, you know, growing up, they're going to do some boneheaded things from time to time. But no matter what they do, they never stop being my son, Right. And, and and so a, 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 a citizen should not stop being a citizen, right? And but that's how I believe, and 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 the folks in the coalition also believe that as well. And and then we also believe that if anyone do lose their rights, that the minute that they've served their time, they should all get it back, right? But you know, Florida is like the most difficult state there is to pass a ballot in this. And so we, we, it was a very distinct difference between what was, I, what was ideal and what was actually practical or could be accomplished strategically. And, you know, at the end of the day, we knew that we still have a lot of work to do uh, with the public or uh, with, with voters to really talk about uh, people who uh, uh, have committed offenses and the fact that if people are released back into our, to our community, then they should be given every opportunity to be successful. But unfortunately, voters are not there yet in the state of Florida, right? And 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 we 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 struggled with that with those carve outs um, to the tone of where it actually set our campaign back almost a full year um, because we we was trying to find uh, various ways in where we could bring everyone. Uh, but when we looked at the data and then we seen, okay, we have 1.4 million, actually about 1.68 million, that, that, that's a more accurate number, um, that was disenfranchised, that uh, people who fit, fit in those categories uh, represented less than 2%. And so we were faced uh, with this philosophical dilemma uh, that a lot of us go to, you know, uh, studied in, in college, you know, uh, what do we do? You know, this is a moral dilemma. You, you're in a boat with 100 people and, 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 and there are lifeboats for 99. Do you let everyone sink in the boat or do you rescue as many as you can? What we looked at was that the bottom line that we wanted to accomplish was to create an alternative pathway. There was a, a, a wall uh, uh, that was erected during the Jim Crow era. Uh, 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 
these policies was Jim Crow policies, part of the black code that permanently barred American citizens from voting. And so Amendment 4, its primary purpose was to destroy that wall and and and, and really uh, create an alternative pathway. What's very notable is that even with the carve-outs, the folks who are impacted by the carve-outs are not forever barred from uh, uh, being able to that there is a pathway that, that that's available to, but Amendment Four did not create that pathway. What Amendment Four did was create that opportunity uh, for folks to be able to vote. Unfortunately, those carve outs was necessary in order for us to actually meet uh, uh, the level of support that we needed to meet to pass anything uh, that would have uh, impacted um, or, or anything that would have had a shot at destroying that wall of discrimination there. Yeah, that makes a, you know, a lot of sense. Uh, and you talk about uh, another pathway, but one thing that I do wonder, uh, you know, I think sometimes because this was a constitutional amendment, it arguably makes it a little more challenging to go kind of, you know, with a lot of legislation I work on, we do have carve outs because of the same thing you're talking about. Uh, the problem with the constitutional amendment a lot of times is that the bar is much higher for, for changing it in the future. Have you thought about pathways to, or, or some way to kind of mobilize the coalition to go back and help the folks left behind eventually? Or is it? Of course, of course. You know, uh, uh, that was never uh, a doubt there because at the end of the day, like I said, we believe that everyone should be able to experience the citizenship, right? And so when we, when we look at um, um, in a lot of these different states, just like in Florida, where the governor has a clemency power, right? And, 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 and that is shared with his cabinet uh, that uh, make up the clemency. And these are all elected officials. And here's the thing. Prior to Amendment 4, uh, you know, we could have gotten a million returning citizens to knock on the governor's door and say, hey, we want our rights back, right? And he would look out the window and see a million people who could not vote, right? What we've created is a situation where as we're, as we're moving forward and registering and engaging more and more returning citizens, we see a situation where... We don't need a, a million, a hundred thousand people can go and say, give us our rights back. And when you talk about elected officials that uh, win elections by only 30,000 votes or 16,000 votes, uh, we, you know, that's a lot of leverage that can be used to fight for our brothers. And oh, yeah, that's uh, I say that all the time. I agree with you 100 uh, percent. You know, if we can get, you know, our politics are different than the other. Go ahead. Sorry. Let me let me add another thing too, because when I talked about that, we it, it pushes back almost a year. During that time frame, one of the things that I personally took on was we had members in our organization who would have been impacted by the carve out, right? And we also had volunteers that worked with us whose loved one would have been would have been impacted by the carve out, right? And I went to each and every last one of them. And and, and 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 had one-on-one conversations with them and, and really be able to talk this thing through. And I'm going to tell you, not one, not one turned away from the campaign. They fought just as hard to pass this amendment, to collect the petitions, to get it on the ballot. They fought just as hard to make sure that this petition passed. Uh, and, and, and so it was very, I was very satisfied with the efforts that we took 
to really have those conversations and and how the coalition really, really uh, uh, gave all these ramifications uh, some deep, deep, deep considerations uh, um, prior to us launching this ballot. Yeah, I think one of the most hopeful things is that while, you know, there are, you know, kind of traditional and party politics in the United States, I always feel like that if we can get all of our people, all the formerly incarcerated people, and you know, with the right to vote, or as many of them as possible, that we mostly agree on our issue. <laughs> so I think it's really powerful that you got that many, or you're getting that many people empowered. Yeah, and um, that's where we want to remain aligned on our issues. You know, one of the things that we tell folks constantly is that our organization does not lean left. We do not lean right. We lean straight forward into the issues that impact people with felony convictions and their family members. That's, I could not agree more. Uh, I, I often say, it, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Neil. No, no. And I think, I think when you start thinking about things from in those terms, just like both you guys said, right, that, that becomes a transformational mindset, right? Because you're literally like, this this group of people, us, our family, this network, whatever however you want to describe it, this constituency, knitted together along the lines of humanity and shared experiences that are willing to put our issues first, that creates incredible leverage, you know, because we're not exactly playing the game the way other people want us to, right? And so you're able to just mobilize along the lines of communities and families and, and and suddenly you can talk to anybody right and that that's the goal right because we do have ex- shared experiences and life experiences that m- make creating safer communities more likely if we're allowed to use our voices and if we can get a seat at the table and then we can start to impact policies because we want the to take that pain that we've been through and turn it into purpose, you know? And so when you can see that play out in a real way, like amendment four, right. I mean, all you want to do is do it some more because there's more lives to be impacted. Absolutely. Uh, and this kind of brings us, uh, well, first of all, I should say, I always say to everybody, it's really important whenever we do win to celebrate our victories. How did it feel right after amendment four was passed? <laughs> there was, let me tell you uh, a quick story. Uh, a couple of years prior, uh, it was a gentleman um, in uh, one of the counties in Florida that uh, thought he could vote. And I remember taking him to the uh, uh, voting uh, location. And uh, after he came out, you know, he, he revealed that they wouldn't let him, let him vote. It was an elderly man. Um, and I was, you know, a little perplexed that they didn't let him vote because I seen his name on the roster. Uh, but then I, I decided to look up, his, you know, to run his uh, name through a database. And discovered that uh, eight years prior, he was uh, convicted of driving with a suspended license. And that voting location was right across the street from a cemetery. And the only thing I could think about was that this man was going to die before he got to experience uh, uh, what it was like to be an American citizen, to be able to vote, right, to have his voice. And that bothered me. Well, that night um, we won, he was there. And I remember that we were hugging each other and, you know, I'm crying and he's crying. And the only thing he kept saying was, I can vote now. I can vote now, you know, and, and, and that really summed up, you know, that, 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 that feeling that, that, that I had that night, you know, and it was like, it was a relief, but it was also overwhelming because knowing how many people in this state, man, that have this, this urge and this yearning to be able to be a part of society in a way that says that, yes, I am a citizen. 
and to have know that people have been waiting years and decades, right, uh, uh, just to be able to just to punch a ballot, man, is it, it was huge. It was huge that night. I know. Yeah, man, uh, I mean, it was overwhelming to kind of like I remember that moment when, right? Because I, I, I know for me, uh, my personality and uh, was just like it foot on the pedal till the end, right? You know, so I was like not really being able to get mentally prepared to suddenly be in a room and watching it pass, you know, when when the numbers ultimately get counted, and then just looking around and just being surrounded by underdogs, man, you know, like people who had been discarded by society folks who just have been overachievers, like so many people in that room, I mean, from all walks of life, right? Some folks lived in the trailer park, some folks lived in the hood, and we were one family just celebrating, but what was bound us together was just some amazing people, right? People were willing to say, hey, my my life, I got to work twice as hard to get half as far, and I'm good with it, you know? And that that was the army that was assembled that, uh, you know, ultimately was there that night, and I was just overwhelmed by, like, for, for me, just a faith moment of like a verification of something I believe so dearly, which is like, hey, God really does use the broken and the hurting, the underdogs, you know, to bring about like real, real change. And it happened that night. And man, we were just shedding tears and hugging. Like it was, it was a great, great moment. But of course, in anything that's worthwhile, nothing ever comes easy. So this brings us to the controversy over implementation. So what do you all want to explain what happened and how the legislator managed to uh, basically work fines and fees into this whole thing? <laughs> that's a, that, no, that's a great question. You know, um, I think this whole situation for, further uh, 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 illustrates why it was so important for us to keep this uh, campaign elevated over above partisan politics and racial anxieties and uh, biases. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, there've been a lot of back and forth around the litigation, around legislation, you know, and, and we've been just screaming at the top of our lungs that uh, to not lose sight of the most important thing. And the most important thing are the people, right? The, the most, most important thing. And, you know, we knew, and, 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 and here's where it gets a little complicated, is that the real debate or the real discussion really laid around what constitutes, you know, did it mean that you, uh, once you uh, complete incarceration, that you're, 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 you're done, or you, whether you, you have to complete probation if you have it, are uh, there monetary obligations that's there? And if so, what type of monetary obligation? This is a, one of the things that we knew is that there were some financial obligations that was inherently connected to of sentence. We know that there are not many, but there are statutes in every state have them where uh, these these laws were made by the legislature uh, and, and basically carries with it uh, 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 terms of imprisonment and or uh, some type of financial obligation. So if you're convicted of violating a certain statute, you face up to five years in prison and up to a $5,000 fine. If at the time of sentencing or when you are standing in front of a judge and you were found guilty and that judge says, because you were found guilty, I'm going to sentence you to two years in prison and order you to pay a $500 fine that is statutorily imposed, right? That for us to be able to say that when a debt is paid, it's paid or we've done our time, we've completed our sentence, then those two requirements had to be met, right? The issue uh, uh, came 
when there are legal financial obligations that was not punitive in nature, but rather administrative in nature, uh, such as the cost of doing business or even uh, financial obligations that incur uh, while a person is incarcerated, right? The initial legislation included all of that, and that's what we stood up for. We stood up and said, no, you cannot, like, add all these different costs to completion of sentence um, because they're more administrative in nature. And so while the debate raged on, uh, we had phrases like poll tax and, and there were uh, accusations of racism. And it was just you know, a lot of these arguments was strictly along the lines of partisan politics, right? And what the reality was, was that it, it, it didn't have to be as complicated. It wasn't as complicated. Uh, and, and we could have implemented this without uh, legislators actually even being involved in that. But unfortunately, you know, um, voting uh, is uh, by just the voting by itself is something that brings on uh, the partisan uh, back and forth. And unfortunately, we, we have to deal with it, you know. Uh, but, we, you know, we're resolved to let the litigators litigate, let the legislators legislate, and we're going to remain keenly focused on people and using avenues that was provided in the legislation to allow people to go to not have to pay those fines and, and still be able to. And, and Josh, let me just add, like add to add some context to that. Cause I thank you. I mean, the way Des just outlines kind of the, the road, right? Like how, how we got there. Uh, but you could put yourself in a situation in which you can see like they, these, these dueling narratives that are, you know, on one hand, it's like you should never have to pay anything to vote. Right. And then the other is, hey, you have to pay everything before you're done. Right. And, and we found ourselves in this like dual headwind of actually we've, we we're, we're, we're saying something different than that. And it seems to be getting lost in this, you know, hacksaw between two ideological or partisan or kind of this yet either or uh, kind of conversation that was happening. But then we saw something pretty beautiful develop. Right. So these first bills that came out in the legislature were very broad. Right. They, there was this the definition of murder, for instance, included manslaughter, attempted murder, a variety of different charges. You know, and like Desmond said, there were in the completion of sentence. Suddenly there was all kinds of fees associated, uh, you know, cost, uh, debt collection cost, interest, all these things that were added on. And we, bit by bit, were able to work with returning citizens, um, some amazing returning citizens who came to Tallahassee basically for all of session, right? And over a course of several uh, weeks and months, you know, through five or six subcommittees, we got to see the bills get a little bit better, right? And, and I'm not saying that we, you, you know, the bills are what we would write, right? But we were dealing with a situation where it was like, hey, we fought to have our voices back. And now you're getting to see those voices, uh, you know, be, be utilized for the good of the community and to educate people um, in the legislative process. So bit by bit, you know, the bills started to take shape and, and get closer to what the original spirit of Amendment 4 was. Um, and, and, and again, you talked to Des and I, you can hear us and you're the same way. I know Josh was like, we're, we're just optimists, man. This, this whole movement's built on hope and love, you know, so we're going to keep, we're going to get up every day, roll up our sleeves, keep fighting with the smile on our face, you know? So what we do know is that, that 
with that legislation, 766, it provided tools that uh, that gave us pathways um, and, and access to the courts uh, where we could uh, work with the, the, the judicial districts um, to help returning citizens uh, complete their sentences and become eligible to vote and uh, ultimately reintegrate into the community. And uh, one of the ways that you all are fighting back is kind of creating, uh, for lack of a better, I think kind of a bail project model where people are contributing uh, money to help relieve people's criminal justice fines and fees and debt. Is that correct? Yep. And anyone that wants to donate, uh, they can always text the word fee to the number 82623 uh, to help contribute to that uh, uh, fundraising effort. Uh, but we're using those monies uh, to help pay off fines and fees uh, to individuals who may live in judicial circuits in which we have not uh, had an opportunity to set up processes uh, to uh, run them through the courts. And how has that been going so far, that effort? Man, I'll tell you, it's a hard, listen, nothing worth having comes easy. Uh, but we have raised over uh, a half a million dollars. We're uh, nearing 600000 now. Uh, and over the uh, holiday season, we've been able to pay off about $250,000 worth of, of fines and fees for individuals. And uh matter of fact, this week, tomorrow, I think, uh, we're going to be going down to South Florida, and we're going to be paying off some fees of a few folks, uh, getting them on the voting roster. It's amazing. Uh you know, part of the reason I wanted to do this episode is to start to try to help uh, raise awareness of that campaign. Uh, at the same time, just about a week ago, the 11th Circuit released a decision nullifying, uh, at least for 17 people, uh, the fines and fees requirement, right? Yeah. And so here's the, so, and the part about this case that a lot of folks don't know is that those, the 17 plaintiffs, uh, most if not all of those individuals were able to register yeah, uh, um, when we passed Amendment Four, and, and so uh, what we what we seen with the ruling is basically saying to the Secretary of Elections or the Supervisor of Elections that you would not remove those people if it is determined that they have money that they still owe. You would not remove those people, and so that ruling was um, basically a, a, a ruling that was based on an injunction. Uh, a partial injunction that was issued uh, sometime late last year in which the state appealed. And so the 11th Circuit said, no, that injunction is fine. Um, those 17 people would not be removed from the roster uh, for inability to pay any outstanding fines and fees that they may owe. And so that's a great thing. Uh, the language uh, of, of the 11th Circuit was beautiful language that really just spoke to how uh, access to the ballot box uh, should not be determined by a person's wealth, right? That all Americans should have uh, unfettered access to that. And and we are we're continuing to stay in this fight, like Neil said, uh, and to make sure that at the very minimum that we're utilizing the avenues that we do have, where other people face the obstacles, see opportunities, and we're going to utilize whatever avenues are available to make sure that any one of the 1.4 million uh, Floridians who have a desire to participate in elections uh, have that opportunity here in 20. So I'm trying and, and, to... Oh, let ahead. me just I talk to you a little bit about the 11th Circuit, right? Because it's like, I think as you can see and your listeners can hear, right? Like 
for us, True North, and, and just our singular focus is, is, our, is our community, right? The returning citizen community uh, in Florida. And so one of the things that we're seeing, um, and this isn't a critique as much as like just a, an understanding of the context of what it's like to go through the process of applying and working under the existing law, and then knowing that there's some cases out there, is that there is this little bit of a feel of being on a roller coaster ride. Right. Because you've got state courts, federal courts. And 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 and, and one of the things that we take very seriously is the, is the family nature of the movement. So it's like when 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 something appears through the media uh, to be, you know, some amazing news that impacts somebody's life when actually it is good news and gives us cautious optimism, but actually does not allow the, you know, so many the hundreds of thousands of people to vote in Florida, like the headlines might say then we're the ones who walk with people. And, 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 and I think that that's one of the things also that folks should, should understand about this process is we've all been in a situation where the expectations get brought up and then that's actually not the full scope. And uh, so I think that that is also a part of the story that's important for people to know is, is that we, we know that this is a roller coaster and that there's some more steps to go. And, it's, uh, and we take very seriously the process of walking with people who are impacted by that, who see the headlines. I, I know for me, when the 11th Circuit came out, I was tagged on seven, within an hour or two, 79 different posts in Southwest Florida where I live and people encouraging other folks to go vote when actually that isn't how it played out, right? It was, you know, another step in this legal discussion and people were on this roller coaster. And so I think that's important context too, because in those moments, we wanna be there. We want to do exactly what Desmond just said, which is like, if anyone is interested, there's a returning citizen who wants to walk this out and, and, and explore these pathways. We want to be there for them, which is why the fines and fees program is so important, um, because there are pathways uh, that we can walk with people uh, to get them where they want to go. So um, we have a, uh, you know, I mean, you're in Florida, I'm in Michigan, uh, but we're all part of a bigger family. And I'm sure you've heard about what's been going on in Mississippi. 24 people have died in the last two months in Mississippi prisons. Do you all have anything you all want to say here? Yeah. So, uh, you know, what we're seeing happening in, in, in Mississippi, uh, and I know that there's a lot of uh, factors that are that have impacting that situation. But I, I think first and foremost is it, it really speaks to why it is so important that we're shifting a narrative, right? Because, you know, when you, when you think of about a person that commits a crime, you know, all of a sudden now we're felons, we're convicts, we're these evil folks, we're these monsters, and, and, and we're separated from the rest of society. When the reality is, is that each and every one of these individuals are someone's son, someone's daughter, someone's grandson and granddaughter, and, and, and that they're human beings, right? that yes, they, they made mistakes, they may have committed crimes uh, at various levels, but they're still human beings. And I think that when you, when you separate a person from humanity, then it'll, it desensitizes society, and, and we're not as outraged at, at how people are being treated or, or how people are, are, are being impacted. And, and even with the collateral consequences that come along with felony convictions, with people not being able to get jobs, people not being able to further their education, people not being able to live in safe and affordable housing. And it seems like society is not as, as, as apathetic uh, uh, to these situations because 
of the pictures and the narratives that's painted of people who commit crimes. But at the end of the day, in spite of what they've done, what they've done, they're still human beings. And we cannot lose sight of that humanity because when we do lose sight of the humanity, things like what's happening in the Mississippi prisons uh, will continue to happen. Yeah, I, I'm so with you. Like I, my, 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 my blood boils and, 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 and I talk to friends in Mississippi and I am just like uh, saddened and angered and pissed off by the gap that exists between the outrage that I know so many of us feel and what appears to be utter apathy about how our fellow human beings are being treated. And, you know, to kind of piggyback on what Desmond was talking about, it reminds me of just how far we have to go in terms of uh, really truly seeing each other as humans and people first, like sons and daughters of God, you know, that who, no matter what our behavior is, and where we are in this walk, that there is an alignment, that there is a common humanity that should transcend all that. And 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 to be honest with you, when I think about when you ask that question, that 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 it's that gap that uh, that I feel like, hey, I want to spend part of my life in some way, shape, or form, even to the smallest ability, to narrow that gap a little bit because the world need needs to be a better place uh, for. Um, for folks uh, of all, you know, people from all walks of life. And, and, and I think that when that switch gets flipped, uh, we've all seen it. Um, what, what a better world it can be uh, once we begin to see each other that way. And man, that's, I'm frustrated, uh, you know, because the numbers keep going up, right? It's like every week, it's kind of like, hey, when are we gonna, you know, when are we gonna stop this? What's, you know, what's holding it up? So I appreciate the question and, and, and uh, I wish I had, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a solution-oriented person, but that man, that's frustration is what, what what I think of when I and in my heart yeah. breaks for the families. It's it's hard, man. Uh, I've been asking people this season since this is the Decarceration Nation podcast what people think would be some of the best changes that might might help get more folks out of prisons and jails. Like, what are some things you all think might be good solutions now? Um, I, I, I you know. A couple of things that, uh, that, you know, that, that jump out to me, obviously it's, there's, there's points on, 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 on all sides, right? So it's like, I think the sentencing reform is, is incredibly invaluable, uh, right. As it relates to people, um, going in, um, I think working on anything that will reduce recidivism, uh, on, on the reentry side, on the back end, when we get out, like, I think the systems are, are, are set up wrong. Uh, this kind of punishment mentality, just like, you know, just gets stuck on somebody. And we have, you know, I look at here in Florida where, you know, to, to get a job license, sometimes you have to wait five, 15 years. And it's kind of like when all the data and all our real world experience shows, it's like, man, you got to be able to get a job. The minute, you're off community supervision the minute you're out of jail or prison you know like and and so i, I think that it's like it's the, the, the focusing on the two different points of entry and then coming out um so really that re-entry reform sentencing reform uh, i i think those are the things that can really uh allow us to see our friends and family get out faster what about you, Desmond? in the first place man you know i i think that it's definitely in the in the a combination. Can I pick two things? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> I, 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 I think that we eat that we have to eat the apple from both sides. You know, uh, I, I think that um, we have to decriminalize, and and I think it goes beyond sentencing. I think that there are things there uh, that uh, is people are actually getting arrested 
um, and, and and appearing in court uh, that they should not be, right? And, and, and even when you talk about how legalizing marijuana, you know, that how that plays a role in it, and also finding alternatives for drug addiction or alcohol addiction, right, uh, other than utilizing the prison system. And then the other thing that we utilize the prison system to do is to house our people who are uh, experiencing uh, um, mental challenges. Here, yeah. So I think that that is the beginning uh, of peace. And then, of course, when people are released from prison, that they have to be a, a mental shift, you know, and understand that it is in society's best interest that people who are released from incarceration be given every opportunity to successfully reintegrate. And so they must be a comprehensive uh, application to reentry, uh, that no matter what part of the city or the state or what part of the country you're being released in, that you are giving uh, resources uh, that are necessary uh, to to be able to to move on with your lives and, and to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, you know? Absolutely. I always ask the same last question, what did I mess up? What question should I have asked but did not? You can answer it any way you want to. <laughs> I, maybe I can I can jump into that. I, I, one of the questions that I I think w- when we talk about Amendment Four, uh, a lot of the questions we get are about the what, you know, um, what happened, what you know, what does this impact? And I think one of the things that uh, I I always go back to, and I know we touched on a little bit, is is the how, right? Like this this was actually, you know, if you, if you want to be bold about it, is that you had people who had been left behind by society and our communities who are heroes of democracy in the state of Florida, right? Like that is a transformation that so many people, when I talk about this, they they, they can't comprehend it right away, but it's a reality. It is people who are showing the rest of the nation, right? You're talking about folks, returning citizens, people who put uh, 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 their pain to you know to good use and, and develop a purpose to change a policy that had been in place for 150 years and do so in a way that transcended politics. Um, and I think just think that that's an amazing process when you think about that movement being led by Desmond and a returning citizen community directly impacted community um, and and what that says that there are so many lessons to be learned that I think uh, about how we can make change that are embedded in that process. And sometimes, uh, not here on your show, but in some spaces, I think people have a hard time digging into it because it is uh, included in it is the idea that it is these folks with the labels, <laughs> the folks who have the criminal past, who are actually the ones who were leading this effort. And, and, and that, that becomes a little bit of cognitive dissonance for some folks. So I appreciate, uh, you know, every question that you asked, but when given an opportunity to talk about this movement, I, I love to kind of go into the, the how, you know, how this thing works, um, because it's really pretty special if you think about it. Do you have any thoughts, Desmond? Yeah, Neil, Neil, stole, Neil stole mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he sure did, you know, and then, you know, the other one we was able to really talk about really. You know, I think at the end of the day, how can people help? You know, no matter what part of of the country you live, um, whether it's in Idaho or 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 Minnesota or, or Washington, you know, at the end of the day, I think that there is uh, interest in 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 really expanding democracy here in Florida. And so, you know, folks 
no matter where you're at, that you can help. Uh, you can help our efforts. You can donate uh, to help us pay fines and fees. You can just uh, check us out on our website, man, and see the work that we're doing and, and find ways that you can uh, help volunteer uh, for our efforts. Even though you may live states away, uh, maybe you can help us make some phone calls or, you know, um, or tell other folks and or reach out to people that you might know in the state of Florida uh, and make sure that they're connected with the work that we're doing. That's a great lead in to the next thing I was going to say, which is before we go, I have two things I want you all to tell everybody. The first one is how can they find the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition? Go, go to our website, which is floridarrc.com, floridarrc.com. And uh, there is a section there uh, for fines and fees. There's also, like uh, Desmond mentioned, uh, lots of different interactive tools. And uh, especially for folks who live in Florida who might want to get involved in our chapters or who might uh, be returning citizens, we'd love to get plugged in. And the second one is how can they contribute? What's the text and all that stuff that Desmond said earlier about helping reduce people's fines and fees? Yeah, so they could definitely text the word fees, F-E-E-S, to the number 82623, or they can always go to wegotthevote.org as well. Um, both sites are connected, and those are ways and to, to donate. They can go to our website, also click on the donate button that gives them various options of how to donate. Uh, uh, most donations are tax deductible, um, so you know you could use it for a tax write-off next year. So we're there, and we're 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 welcoming any and all individuals that want to contribute to expanding democracy here in the state and improving the lives of have served their time and are ready to move on. Absolutely. It's a real pleasure to get to have this conversation with both of y'all, kind of my brothers in the struggle here. And uh, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Josh, man. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Sean Morales-Doyle serves as senior counsel in the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, where he focuses on voting rights and elections and was part of the recent decision on Amendment 4 in Florida. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, and thanks so much for taking the time, Sean. Uh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. If I understand correctly, you were part of the legal team working on this decision. How did the team come together? Uh, yes, I was. I'm a lawyer at the Brennan Center for Justice, as you noted. And um, we, as an organization, have been working on this issue in Florida for many years. Um, we brought some litigation on this issue back in the early 2000s and were involved in the drafting and the campaign for Amendment 4. Uh, so was, uh, were our partner organizations. And so when the, um, the bill was passed in 2019, um, we had already been working with the ACLU, the ACLU of Florida, and the NAACP, Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Um, and that's the team that formed together to bring this litigation. Uh, we represented um, organizations in Florida that we've worked with for many years, the League of Women Voters of Florida and the NAACP of Florida and, and the of Orange County, um, along with some individuals that we got in touch with once um, Amendment 4 was on uh, the books, and we ended up then later being joined by a couple other organizations who filed their own suits, the Campaign Legal Center, Southern Poverty Law Center, and all of our lawsuits were then consolidated. Uh, 
I wanted to have you help people understand this new U.S. District Court decision. I'd already uh, talked to the guys from uh, the Florida Rights Restoration Committee prior uh, to this court decision coming out. So I read it earlier today, but, you know, having an expert on to summarize it makes sense to me. So could you summarize as well as you could, uh, as well as you can, what was a pretty long decision? It was like 125 pages long for everyone listening. Yeah, surprised uh, you read it this morning, but um, it, it was 125 pages. It's, it's a little bit of a, a opinion to get through, but um, you know, I'd recommend people who are interested to read it because I think it's a really good opinion. Um, the, the court did a few things in this opinion. Um, first, it made a number of rulings about who is eligible to vote and when it is um, unconstitutional to deny someone the right to vote. And basically, the court um, ruled that there were three categories of of folks who are eligible to vote um, and categories of folks who had been barred from voting unconstitutionally, Senate Bill 7066. Most of those are people who owe fines or fees or some kind of legal financial obligation they're unable to afford. That's a ruling that actually the judge had made back in October on a preliminary injunction, um, and that has already been upheld by uh, um, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. That, that one wasn't a surprise, but it now um, applies to everyone across Florida. Um, the second group is people who only owe fees and costs. The judge said that um, fees and costs in Florida, as distinguished from fines and restitution, function like, function like taxes. Um, their primary purpose is to raise revenue, not really um, punishment aimed at um, the severity of the offense um, being punished or anything like that. They're just, um, you know, run-of-the-mill costs that are taxed against anybody who has uh, conviction. Um, and he said that under the 24th Amendment, which people may know is the amendment that prohibits poll taxes, uh, it's unconstitutional to charge someone a tax in order to, um, before they can vote. Um, and, and the third category um, is people who can't figure out what they owe. And so there's a lot of evidence in this case um, and the judge found that basically Florida has no reliable system for determining what somebody owes. He described the attempted administration of this law as an administrative train wreck. Um, so as he put it, sometimes easy, sometimes hard, sometimes impossible for someone to figure out what they owe. And what he said is if you can't figure out um, whether you owe an amount, even with diligence, that can't be held against you um, for voting either. So it's unconstitutional to deny someone the right to vote based on but it's unknown and can't be discovered with those. Those are the first important rulings about who's eligible. He followed up to provide a remedy um, for people who fall into those categories and people who aren't sure so that they can have clarity and they can feel comfortable going and registering and voting and not worrying about getting in trouble for it. And that came in a couple different forms. One, he said the voter registration form that this bill created uh, is illegal, violates the National Voter Registration Act. It was a complete mess, and it really looks like it was aimed at discouraging people, encouraging them to. So he got rid of that form. Um, and then the second thing he did is he provided some guidance to people to figure out um, whether they are a person who's unable to afford what they owe or to figure out what it is that they do owe. First, he said there's some, um, some categories, some criteria um, presumptively show that you're able to afford what you owe. So if you were appointed a public defender, then you 
presumably can't afford to pay off your um, these costs, fines, restitution. And so um, unless there's some reason why now you are able to afford those things, you're good to register and vote. And if you had your fees uh, and fines, et cetera, converted to civil judgments, um, which is a frequent practice in Florida for people who can't afford them, then you're presumably able to go and vote as well. And the, the last part of that is he said, if you don't know, don't know what you owe, you can't figure it out, you've tried, um, or you're not sure whether you meet the requirements for unable to afford to pay, you can ask the state for an advisory opinion. He provided a form to do that on. Tell them, um, here's my financial situation, or I can't figure out what I owe. They have to give you an answer to say definitively, this is what you need to pay off and why, and give you an explanation. If they don't give you an answer within three weeks, then you're good to register and vote. Could still give you an answer after that, but you're good to go until you. Um, so, that's right, my probably not that short summary of a very long opinion, and there's a lot more in there. But but basically, he said this law was unconstitutional. Um, the vast majority of the hundreds of thousands of people who are disenfranchised by it can vote now, and here's a way for them to go do that without being scared. I've uh, read enough court decisions uh, to know that this isn't always the way it goes in terms of a judge being willing to roll up their sleeves and kind of work through the day-to-day issues a person uh, faces. For instance, in this in this circumstance, uh, someone with a felony conviction and LFOs in Florida. Uh, I'm guessing you felt the same way. It seemed like this was a lot of work by uh, good work by a judge was a lot of work and good work, as you say. I, you know, he issued a much um, narrower opinion back in October of last year on the preliminary injunction. It was narrow in part because asked only asked for a preliminary injunction on some of our claims. Um, but he only ruled on one of our claims there, but he also basically said back then, you know, really it's not supposed to be my job to fix the state's problems. The state should do that. So. I'm telling you that what you're doing is unconstitutional. The legislative session coming up, legislature and the secretary of state need to figure out a way to make this work. They need to figure out a way to determine who's uh, unable to afford what they owe and make it possible for people to register and vote. He gave them months to do that and he kept pressing them on it and they did nothing to make it any easier for anybody. Um, And so then we got to the trial and that became abundantly clear and um, and it was clear they didn't know how to administer this inadministrable law. And so he came up with a solution. So I do think it, it isn't maybe your typical polling, but it was one that was necessary um, given the situation. And when uh, when courts need to, when federal courts need to, in civil rights cases in particular, they have a lot of power to provide the remedy that people need in order to avoid a constitutional violation. So glad that he did it. Yeah, we had a similar uh, situation with uh, the Doe's versus Snyder class action case here in Michigan pretty recently uh, with the same judge dealing with the same kind of problems with legislative intransigence. Uh, I think most people will be wondering what happens next. I seem to remember from a couple of minutes ago, you mentioning that the state filed their appeal today. Where do we go from here? Uh, yes, just really minutes ago, actually, uh, when we're talking, the state filed a notice of appeal. That that wasn't a surprise. The governor said that he would be appealing earlier in the week. Um, and they've asked the court to stay uh, the decision while that appeal is pending. I, I hope the decision won't be stayed. And, you know, we have already now won at least one of our claims uh, essentially three times over with the 
district court and the appellate court weighing in. Um, but for the time being, until something like that happens, this this is the law. This is the law of the land. Um, and so people are eligible to go register um, using the process the court put in place. Um, and I, um, I am, I'm very confident about our claims and I, and I hope that um, this decision is upheld on appeal. I'm not going to make a prediction about how that court will, will handle this. Um, I will just say that we've, um, we've had a number of victories so far and it continues that way. I do expect the courts will, um, will expedite this um, appeal because um, in elections cases, that's frequently the practice. It's important that we get answers to these questions before elections take place. So everyone knows, you know, we have a, um, an agreed upon understanding of who's eligible and who's not when, when the election happens. I hope that we get that um, final clarity from the appellate court sooner rather than later so that, um, you know, and, and I hope obviously that it is an affirmation of the decision we already have, so that we all head up into this election um, with everyone understanding their rights and with ample time for people to exercise those rights. Uh, I'll just say Amendment 4 the real victory here that even allowed for this um, fight to happen. And um, that was when Florida's voters made clear that they want to open up um, their elections to more people, that this is what they want their democracy to look like. And so I'm thrilled with this opinion and the fact that it's going to really allow Amendment 4 to reach its uh, full glory. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that that's going to be able to play out in the next couple of months um, so that Elections that we have in August and in November in Florida will look the way that Florida's voters want them to. Yeah, I guess that's the next uh, question, I guess. We do have elections coming up in November. You say this law is the law of the land. Uh, you know, if this, you know, for instance, gets, you know, they, they, they give it a stay until... Uh, it gets to the next level. Is this? Is there still going to? How complicated is it potentially going to get for people to figure out if they have the right to vote or not? Um, with the stay in effect, if there were a stay, and again, I hope there won't be, but if there were a stay, um, it gets complicated again. The you know, the court has made very clear how hard this is for people in the absence of the remedy that he's provided. Um, we heard testimony from the. Secretary of State's head of elections during the trial about how much they don't know about how to uh, figure out what people owe or to administer uh, this law. And um, so that that's why I, I hope we don't get back into that situation. Um, and, and I'm sure the, the courts will take that into account when deciding uh, whether or not to stay in this decision. But regardless of whether we have that stay and regardless of um, what ends up happening on appeal, as I said, I do think the courts will move this quickly as they tend to in elections cases. The, the judge in the trial court kept this trial on pace. Been um, in the face of a, of a pandemic, he, you know, he delayed it by only three weeks. We had the whole trial by video conference, which was uh, an interesting experience, um, but worked pretty well because of the importance of getting a decision quickly and allowing the appeal to play out in full with ample time for voters and elections officials to take it into account. Elections was the right thing to do. And I think the courts will continue to take that approach. So uh, I always usually ask the same last question, which is what did I miss? What should I have asked, but didn't in this case, since it was on short notice, I hope there are some things that I missed and need to be covered, but if not, that's fine too. Um, I guess I would, 
harken back to something I said earlier, but I, I do think it's important to remember that we are, in, we are here at this stage uh, because Florida's voters came out in overwhelming support, um, as I'm sure your other guests mentioned, 64.5% of the Florida, Florida electorate came out in support of Amendment 4, it was groundbreaking, it was monumental, and um, it's created a lot of enthusiasm and excitement about um, new voters in Florida. Um, then a lot of that was put on hold by this law, and there's been a lot of uh, angst and concern and fear um, in the intervening months. And this opinion really does pave the way for hundreds of thousands of those people that um, were uh, that, that Floridians thought they were welcoming back into the electorate in November 2018 actually come to the table and participate. That's a big deal. Um, and this decision also, I will say, you know, I talked through the different parts of the opinion. It's a big deal, too. It's a big deal for a court to acknowledge um, the rights of this group of people who are so often, um, you know, lost to the side by our, by our society, um, by our courts, by the legal system, um, to acknowledge that they have these rights under the Constitution is a big deal for a court to apply the 24th Amendment um, in this context. Not that um, it wasn't obvious, in my view, that it should apply, but just that, that, that it is applying. It's important. So many people should be happy about the system we had in Florida um, before Amendment 4 and the system that was created by this bill. We're so far out of step, values that we um, as a nation embraced 50 plus years ago when we ratified the 24th Amendment. Uh, and so I think it's a powerful statement, the, the ruling that we have. Well, uh, I will include a link to the decision if anyone wants to read it. And Sean, thanks so much for doing this on such short notice. I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you having me. No problem. Take care. Thanks again. And now my take. That was a very long episode, so I'm going to have kind of a shorter take than usual. I want every single incarcerated and formerly incarcerated person to have the right to vote. Everyone should have a say in the government that imprisons them and that surveils them. This podcast was actually created as part of my effort to try to educate normal folks and impacted people and their families in order to build and organize the critical will necessary to bring an end to the era of mass punishment in this country. That requires people having the right to vote. It is incredibly important that over a million formerly incarcerated people in Florida might finally have earned their right to vote. It is incredibly important that all incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people similarly earn the right to vote. And it is not okay that people sentenced for murder and for sex offenses were excluded in Amendment 4. Obviously, we can say all of us are none, but the world doesn't always conform to our will. At the same time, we cannot stop the fight until everyone in America has a say in their own governance. I am thrilled for every single person who can now vote in Florida. I will support them with every fiber of my being. I am thrilled that the Brennan Center, the ACLU, and all of their partners are fighting to ensure that every person eligible to vote in Florida can actually vote. I will support this effort with every fiber of my being. 
But this job will not be done until every incarcerated and formerly incarcerated person can vote. I want to thank my guests Desmond Mead, Neil Voles, and Sean Morales-Doyle for joining me to discuss Amendment 4. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. All of the money we raise from Patreon and from other donations goes to our volunteers, Robert and Kate. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or like us on Stitcher or Spotify. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, to Robert Alvarez, who helps with the website, and to Kate Summers, who is helping with our Instagram and Facebook pages. Make sure and add us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and share our posts across your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.